Jesus at no point in the Gospels ever rebukes anyone for interrupting him. Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So one of the things that we see here is just for lack of a better word, I I put it as the interruptibleness of of Jesus, the interruptibleness of Jesus. Now, I know interruptibleness is not a word, but I couldn't really think of a better one. Accessibility, but that didn't really get it. Interruptibleness. Jesus was supremely interruptible. He was supremely approachable. Jesus at no point in the Gospels ever rebukes anyone for interrupting him. He never rebukes anyone for for coming. Now, imagine where Jesus is right now. He has sacrificed sleep on a morning in which he is certainly exhausted physically, emotionally, mentally, and above all, spiritually. And he has sacrificed sleep in order to get alone with the Father. And then here comes Peter and the others. There he is. Jesus, what are you doing way out here? We've been looking for you. And there's Jesus. Approachable Jesus. Available Jesus. Interruptible Jesus. Now, the reason I point this out is because... Jesus's interruptibleness says a whole lot about his heart, just like your interruptibleness says a lot about your heart. It's really a wonderful window into the workings of your heart because your interruptibleness says to you something very powerful about how you value other people. Because our interruptibleness, if if being interrupted by others is something that frequently frustrates you or aggravates you, then, then that's, a, that's a real indication that you need to do some work on how you value other people. Now, that may be hard to hear. It's even harder to say. But it's true. Your frustration and your aggravation at being interrupted by others can often be just a powerful window into how you love others, how you view others, how you value others. Because aggravation and frustration at those who interrupt us show that our heart values self more than them. It values what I was doing right now more than them. Now, what what could be more important than the Son of God communing with the Father right now? Yet Jesus is completely interruptible here. And this is how his ministry always was, wasn't it? If you read through the gospel accounts, you will see a man that's interrupted over and over and over again. He's on his way to Jairus' house, and there's the woman with the flow of blood. He's on his way over here, and there's there's the blind man shouting, Son of David, Son of David, stop, come over here. Jesus is constantly being interrupted by people, and yet never on his lips was a rebuke for those who interrupted. Jesus didn't even rebuke his enemies. His enemies would come with snarky questions for him while he was teaching, and he didn't even rebuke them for their interruptions. He rebuked them for their wrong theology, but he didn't rebuke them for for their interruptions because he loved them, because he valued them, 
because he is the embodiment of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we see something in Jesus's approachableness, of his openness, of his accessibility, of his interruptibleness. We see one who is our example and how he values others. And even at a time in which he has sacrificed his own sleep to commune with the Father, and here comes this group to interrupt him from that time, even then we find no rebuke on his lips. But now let's look further into this, this, this uh, verse. Verse 36, once again, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Now, what Mark is doing here with this word searched, that's really not a great translation because it's really too gentle of a word. It's too weak of a word. The word that Mark uses has a distinct hostile tone to it. It's a word that carries with it a distinct sense of hostility toward the one that you're searching for. And it also carries with it the idea of being frustrated and having to search for them. So a, maybe a, a better translation might be something like hunt down or track down. That's the word that Mark's using here. Hunted down. So what, what Mark is doing is he's using this word that not says Simon and the others search for Jesus. What he says is Simon hunted Jesus down. Now that's communicating something to us about the frustration that Peter experienced. Because here's what didn't happen. Peter and the others didn't wake up in, in their house and, and their mother-in-law, all feeling better, gets up, starts cooking breakfast, and they look at, wait a minute, where's Jesus? Wasn't Jesus here? Didn't he sleep over there in that corner? Where's Jesus? Anybody seen him? Well, he'll, he'll show up. Maybe we should go look for him, make sure he's okay. That's not what happened. Here's what happened. Where is Jesus? Where did he go? Does he not know? Half the people from last night are still outside. And there's more coming today. What was he thinking? Does he not know the excitement? Does he not know how popular he is? Where did he go? This is the worst time to leave, Jesus. That's the attitude. Now, something else that Mark is doing. Notice how he singles out Peter there, Simon and the others. Take a look with me at Luke's parallel account in Luke chapter 4, verse 42. Luke says this, the people sought him. So Luke is telling the same story, and Luke says the people sought him, yet Mark singles out Peter and says Peter or Simon and the others. They're telling the same story. So here's how it kind of went. The confusion begins to arise. Where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? Where'd he go? And then here's Peter. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go find him. We're coming with you, Peter. And so Peter then leads the charge. That's how it happened. But Mark singles out Peter and uses this word that clearly is saying something about the misunderstanding, something about the veiled hostility of Peter, something about this rebuke that Peter has for Jesus when he's going to find him. Because remember who's writing the Gospel of Mark. These are, these are Peter's memories. 
And this is how Peter is telling Mark. This is the, the words that, that Peter is using. Remember how Peter, and we said this at the beginning, Peter and Mark were both men who failed Jesus publicly and visibly and were restored visibly. And so here's Peter in his recollection. He's saying, it was me. It was me. I was the one. And so one of the other things, remember we talked about Mark and his bookends, how Mark loves to do this. Okay, so this is the first instance. There's another one coming in chapter eight. Two instances in which Mark singles out Peter to teach us something of Peter's misunderstanding of the mission of Jesus and how Peter attempts to side rail Jesus's mission, how Peter attempts to take Jesus off of his mission, how Peter attempts to tell Jesus he's not going to continue in obedience. And we know what the other ones come in chapter eight. Lord, no, you're not going to that cross. Mm -mm. Let me let me set you straight, Jesus. You're way too popular. This is way too good of a thing that you got going on here. You're not going to that cross. And Mark says, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Here's the first instance. There's the other instance. Both instances in which Mark says to us, Peter, misunderstanding the Messiah, took steps to derail the Messiah's mission, took steps to tell the Messiah, you're not going to obey the will of God. So one of the things that we see here is how oftentimes, you ever notice this? How oftentimes it can sometimes be the very people of God, friends and family and loved ones and other believers in the body of Christ who can themselves with great intentions be the ones who attempt to divert us from the will of God. You ever notice that? with the best of intentions. You know, Peter does not have ill intentions right here. Those who are with him, they don't have ill intentions either. They have the best of intentions. They are excited about Jesus and they're excited about his power and what he did last night. So they don't have evil motives. Nonetheless, in their ignorance of the Messiah, they come attempting to convince Messiah not to continue with the will of God. The same thing happens in our life too. Sometimes those who are close to us, those who also know the Lord, can have the best of intentions. Yet, they can also divert us or attempt to divert us from the will of God. Now, here at Disciples Fellowship, we are big believers in the fact that the Spirit communicates to the body through the body. And so oftentimes we look to others in the body for affirmation, for confirmation, for where the Spirit might be leading to leading us and saying to us. And so that is very true. But at the same time, we are fallen humans and we don't always get it right. Sometimes, like Peter and the others, the best of friends, the closest of friends, fellow believers can be the ones who, with the best of motives, seek to divert us from the will of God. So this is the first thing that we see here. But secondly, we see this. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, hunted him down, tracked him. Jesus did a good job hiding because the word here that Mark uses means that they had to look a long time. He uses it in the imperfect tense, meaning that they they were sort of looking for a while. Jesus didn't just sort of go down the corner and, and duck into an alleyway. Jesus hid himself well. And so they looked and they looked and they searched and they finally found him, verse 37. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So there we have searching for you. He searched for him, but now we have looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. So the word that Mark uses there is a word that he's going to use eight times. Eight times, 
Every single time Mark uses it, he's going to use it in a clear context of speaking of those who are seeking or searching to oppose the Messiah. The instances are here in your notes, just one of them from Mark chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him. Eight times, 100% of the time Mark uses that word, he's using it to communicate those who are seeking or looking to oppose the Messiah. So here we see Mark is already teaching us this, this, this theme that he has that the disciples, you know, the disciples were not a help to Jesus. They were a hindrance. The disciples hear Jesus' call in chapter one, Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow me, and they do. And that is the one and only instance in all of Mark's gospel in which the disciples are portrayed completely positively. From this point on, the disciples are a hindrance to Jesus. You know, there is a a popular TV show about the life of Jesus right now that's portraying the disciples and Jesus's gathering of the disciples as collecting around him helpers to help him. That's not how the gospels portray it. Jesus didn't collect the disciples around him to be his helpers. They were more of a hindrance than a help, as is Peter here, as are the crowds. The crowds are a hindrance to Jesus. The crowds are an obstacle that he must overcome. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Don't you know? You couldn't be more popular, Jesus. What are you doing out here? There's still more people to heal. Word is spread even further. Why would you come here right now, Jesus? Don't you get it? You know what? I think we can put up a big tent and you can heal more people. Maybe we can send some flyers to some neighboring towns and get some more people to come. We really hit it big here, Jesus. Don't you understand? Everyone is looking for you. But Jesus will not allow even his own popularity to be an obstacle for his mission. So he says to them, verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns. Everybody's looking for you, Jesus. You were a tremendous hit last night. Jesus' response, time to go. Let us leave. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. So Mark has hinted to us three times in the passage earlier of the primacy of Jesus' preaching. The primacy, the focus, the central focus of Jesus's earthly ministry. We know that the ultimate reason is for him to make the atonement, for him to die. That's what he's going to say in chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as ransom for many. So that's his ultimate purpose. But his purpose in this three-year period, his central purpose is not to heal. It's not to do miracles. It's not to cast out demons and cleanse lepers. His central main purpose is preaching. He says it explicitly here. This is why I came. I came to preach. Jesus came as a preacher. Jesus didn't come as a healer, even though he healed a lot of people. He didn't come as a healer. Jesus didn't come as a demon caster outer, even though he cast out a lot of demons. He came as a preacher. He came as one, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus says in the synagogue, the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim the good news. He came as a preacher, just as Paul will say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Acts 6 and verse 4, 
the apostles here say, you know, that we should not be diverted from our central task, which is prayer and the ministry of the word. Or Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word. That's what I exhort you, Peter or Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word. So Jesus comes as a preacher. This is his central focus. Jesus is heavily invested in preaching. Heaven is heavily invested in preaching because preaching the word is how the kingdom of God is established and how the kingdom of God moves forward through the proclamation of the word. It's not the miracles. The miracles are a confirmation for what Jesus says. Even Nicodemus recognizes this in John 3. You remember when Nicodemus says, well, you must be from God because no one can do the things that you're doing if they weren't from God. So therefore, the things that you're saying, I must listen to. The miracles were always an affirmation, a confirmation for what he says. What he, pre- what he says, what he preaches is always the central focus. Because Jesus came as a preacher. He's, he's invested in preaching. His priority is preaching. So the question I'll leave us with is this. Are we as a church, do we have the same commitment to the straight, simple preaching of God's word as did Jesus? The answer right now is clearly yes. Preaching is the central focus of what we do. But are we prepared to maintain that focus? Are we prepared to be intentional and purposeful in maintaining that focus? Because if God would be pleased to bless us with more disciples, more faces, new faces, you know what? New faces mean new ideas. And the only way that a focus on the primacy of preaching can be maintained is if the church is purposeful and intentional about it and commits from day one This is the central thing that we do. We preach the Word. Not the only thing that we do, but that is the central thing that we do. Jesus was committed to preaching. His church must be committed to preaching as well. 